This is Guns and Butter. Corporation on contract with the U.S. Army, which commissioned a report examining uh, a war with China. And now this is called War with China, Thinking Through the Unthinkable. Now, the irony of this is that what they want to examine in this report is whether we could actually win a war on China. Okay? Essentially, this is a simulation of a war between the United States and China and comes up with the conclusion that we're going to win it, okay? Now, th that's diabolical and it's criminal, okay? What, what, what has China done to the, the sovereignty of the United States? I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Michelle Chosodovsky. Today's show, is the U.S. planning to wage war on Russia and China? Michel Chosodovsky is an economist and the founder, director, and editor of the Center for Research on Globalization, based in Montreal, Quebec. He is the author of 11 books, including The Globalization of Poverty and the New World Order, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, America's War on Terrorism, and The Globalization of War, America's Long War Against Humanity. Today we concentrate on the global military agenda, on the evolving restructure of geopolitical alliances, the nuclear posture review, the purpose of the Manhattan Project, and the dangers of nuclear war. Michel Chosodovsky, welcome again. Delighted to be on Guns and Butter. President Trump's surprise announcement that the U.S. is leaving Syria caught most people in and out of government by surprise and led to the resignation of Secretary of Defense Mattis. 2,000 U.S. troops will be withdrawn from Syria. What is your assessment of this move? Well, first of all, that withdrawal is... Uh in terms of U.S. forces, is, is trivial. Uh, the United States has operated in Syria by financing and supporting tens of thousands of uh, jihadists with the support of Saudi Arabia uh, and up to a certain point also Turkey, although Turkey has a different agenda. And within those... Um, jihadist forces, you have covert special forces from a number of Western countries. Uh, I don't view this necessarily as a, as a major shift in the U.S. foreign policy, but it's also the result of the fact that uh, the Russians uh, are playing a key role. Turkey is... Um, playing its own role with, uh, with a tacit alliance with Russia and Iran. And I, I, I think that what now the United States is doing is, is it's not a retreat necessarily. It's a strategic uh, withdrawal with a view of eventually that its allies, particularly Saudi Arabia, Israel, might play a more active role. And we see that Israel is actually involved in, in routine bombings of Syria. 
Well, you have long maintained that Israel's defense forces are integrated into the U.S. military command structure and as such do not act alone. Does this then mean that when the Israeli Air Force strikes Syria, as was done over Christmas, that the U.S. has signed off on these attacks? Well, you know, if you look at, at uh, the structure of military alliances and the agreements uh, reached both with NATO as well as with the Pentagon, uh, Israel is a de facto member of NATO. Not de jure, but de facto. And there, there was, in fact, uh, an agreement signed way back. Uh, it was... Uh, I think, about 15 years ago. Now, as far as, um, as air defense systems is concerned and uh, major theater operations, Israel will never act on its own. It, it will act in terms of uh, piecemeal military attacks, uh, bombings, and so on, but ultimately... Israel is integrated into the U.S.-NATO structure. And um, historically, uh, the United States has always used Israel as an outpost in the, in the Middle East. Uh, we recall uh, during the Bush administration that Dick Cheney intimated that maybe Israel would attack Iran on our behalf. In other words, he actually intimated they will do the dirty work for us. But in effect, such an attack, an attack on Iran cannot take place without, without the, the green light from the Pentagon. I, I think that we're at a very, we're very dangerous crossroads in our history because there's an evolving situation in the Middle East there's a shift in alliances, uh, there's a global military agenda. Let's bear in mind that since 2001, we have had a whole sequence of military operations, some of them conducted by U.S. allies, but invariably Washington has been behind the wars in Afghanistan, uh, Syria, Libya, Lebanon, Yemen, Somalia, Sudan, and so on. Uh, and of course, Ukraine. Um, so that essentially what is unfolding in 2019, in fact, it has been unfolding for a long period of time, is a global military agenda. It's the globalization of war. And coupled with this uh, are military plans to attack Russia and China uh, with nuclear weapons. Now, I, I mention this because these military plans are in the public domain. You can go and read them. The RAND Corporation has, has actually published its own plan a few years back, and more recently we have another plan to that effect. Uh, 
So that all this is, of course, coalescing and it's coupled with, uh, with trade wars, uh, financial warfare, sanctions. Uh, the nature of warfare has certainly progressed since, you know, since the 1970s and 80s. And um, we have non-conventional uh, forms of warfare. Some people call it hybrid warfare, where you destabilize a country by, by uh, undermining its financial structure. That's what's happening in Venezuela. You simply you, you manipulate the foreign exchange market and then the Venezuelan Bolivar collapses, uh, triggering hyperinflation. That, that is something which has been uh, on the drawing board of, of U.S. foreign policy for years. But what I'm, what I'm trying to emphasize is that there is a global military agenda. And, of course, in addition to the wars in Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, you have U.S. war plans against China and Russia. President Trump announced his decision to remove U.S. troops from Syria shortly after having spoken twice to Turkish President uh, Recep Erdogan. The mainstream news is reporting that Erdogan assured Trump that Turkey could finish off ISIS in Syria and that the U.S. forces were hindering Turkey. Trump is reported to have said, okay, it's all yours. We are done. Of course, of course, this reporting is based on the false narrative that the U.S. was in Syria fighting ISIS. What do you think is behind Trump's conversation with Erdogan? Well, you know, uh, Erdogan has his own agenda. And, um, and at the same time, Erdogan is sleeping with the enemy. In, in other words, they have a, now a coalition with, with, uh, with Russia and, and Iran. Um, in, in fact, these are cross-cutting coalitions. Uh, uh, Turkey is, is a heavyweight in NATO. It's the largest in terms of military might, it's the second largest in, in terms of conventional forces after the United States. Uh, so that's, and it's allied, of course, to, to the United States. But then on the other hand, Turkey is opening up to Iran and, and Russia. And, uh, and that is a situation which evolved after the failed coup against uh, Erdogan a few years back. And so that there's been a, a major shift in, in uh, geopolitical relations. But I think the United States realizes, first of all, that Turkey's agenda in northern Syria is to fight the YPG, in other words, the Kurdistan uh, uh, separatist movement. And I think that what they're doing now is, is simply, well, because the YPG at one point was supported by the U.S., so you don't want to... You, you don't want to have Turkey fighting your proxy forces. And as a result of that uh, contradictory situation in northern, in northern Syria, um, the United States has, has decided to withdraw and let Turkey uh, consolidate in northern Syria 
As to whether that will occur is, is very uncertain because now the Kurdistan um, YPG, which uh, previously had the support of the United States, is negotiating with, uh, with the Damascus government and with the Russians. As well, the president is saying that he wants to remove U.S. troops from Afghanistan. What is the strategy behind withdrawing U.S. troops from these countries? Do these announced troop withdrawals indicate a move away from war, or rather the privatization of military actions via Blackwater and other private militias? What do you think? Well, first of all, as far as Afghanistan is concerned, um, this withdrawal, again, is, is not really a withdrawal. It's a, rest- it's a restructuring of the, of the conflict. But what's important to bear in mind is that the insurgency, which is led by the Taliban, uh, is gaining ground and controls about 50% of, of, the, of the country. Um, the Russians uh, have an interest in Afghanistan, and of course so do the Chinese, which have a common border with, uh, with Afghanistan, and they also have significant uh, economic interests in, in, uh, in Afghanistan. But I don't see, uh, again, that that the United States is, is actually going to uh, withdraw. We, we have to bear in mind that Afghanistan is a U.S.-NATO um, agenda, and we have to go back to 2001 to understand why. Well, some people forget that the United States went into, they went into Afghanistan essentially because Afghanistan attacked America on 11 September 2001. We don't know that because that narrative was never actually portrayed uh, by the media. But legally, uh, the decision taken by NATO uh, was that America had been attacked from abroad by a foreign power, uh, which was absurd, Okay, there were no Afghani jet fighters in the, in the skies of New York that day. And consequently, under Article 5 of the Washington Treaty Collective Security Agreement, an attack on one member of NATO is an attack on all members of NATO. Uh, it's an act of self-defense. And then we go and attack Afghanistan some thousands of miles away. Um, and that happens 28 days later. You don't prepare a large-scale theater war in 28 days, okay? But people don't remember why the United States actually invaded Afghanistan on the 7th of October 2001. It was in response to the 9-11 attacks, and of course those 9-11 attacks were allegedly, I don't want to get into discussion on 9-11, allegedly they were conducted by al-Qaeda, led by Osama bin Laden, and um, it just so happens, of course, that in the course of the month of September and even early October, uh, the Afghan government said, if you want to negotiate the extradition of Osama bin Laden, we're prepared to to do so, etc., etc. Bush said no. 
we don't negotiate with terrorists. And, of course, they didn't want to negotiate because that war was planned well in advance of September uh, 11, 2001. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, Is the U.S. Planning to Wage War on Russia and China? I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, bear in mind, what were the real reasons for invading Afghanistan? Well, Afghanistan is a geopolitical hub which links Central Asia to South Asia. Historically, it occupies a very important position but it also has tremendous, there are tremendous resources. There are the mineral riches. It's one of the largest producers of lithium, which is used to make batteries. But more significantly, it produces approximately more than 90% of opium supplies to Western markets, of course, used to make grade four heroin. Uh, and that's a multi-billion dollar undertaking. It is, it's a war of conquest, so to speak. Uh, the U.S. military controls the opium trade, which incidentally, um, the production of opium in the course of that period has gone up about 30 times. And in turn, there's tremendous mineral reserves. And then on the other hand, China is involved. And so that, so that um, from, from the U.S. point of view, Afghanistan is uh, the hub that they want to keep under their control to keep the Chinese and the Russians out of, uh, of that strategic hub in, in Central Asia. Uh, they're failing because the Chinese uh, not only have uh, significant uh, mining interests in, in, in Afghanistan. They're also in the process of building a road linking the two countries and so on. Let's talk about what you have referred to as the global military agenda and the structure of alliances in the Middle East. Um, there has been a shift or rebalancing of geopolitical alliances. The situation seems fluid. What can be said about the alliance between Turkey, a NATO member, and Russia and Iran? This brings up the subject of an attack on Iran, which now does not seem probable at all. Well, first of all, let, let me um, address the issue of, of, uh, of the broader military agenda. Well, at present, we have several war theaters. The most important ones are of course, Iraq, Syria. There's still, of course, uh, a U.S.-NATO presence, uh, covert presence in Syria. So Iraq, Syria, uh, Yemen is absolutely crucial. There's a war in Yemen. Yemen is strategically located. It's led by Saudi Arabia, which is uh, acting on behalf of, of the United States. And then you have Somalia, and, uh, of course, Palestine, and, as I mentioned earlier, the, the building up of NATO forces in, uh, in Ukraine and the Black Sea Basin. 
um, and all of this is integrated into a, a more global uh, military agenda with a you know with a regional command structure where the United States military has has commands in in different parts of the world. Central command is for the Middle East, and then you have also the Pacific command. Uh, China's um, maritime borders are uh, controlled by by the U.S., or at least the U.S. has a military presence in all these strategic waterways. Now, that agenda, as you mentioned, that agenda, in a sense, is in a straitjacket because uh, there are divisions within the Western military alliance, and not only Turkey, not only Turkey. There are different positions by by the European members of the Atlantic Alliance. But the issue of Turkey is absolutely fundamental because uh, if Turkey has an alliance with Iran and, um, and Russia, it's going to be very difficult to wage a U.S.-NATO-led war on Iran. Now, at the same time, if we're looking at alliances, which under present circumstances are exceedingly complex, uh, we must underscore the fact that Turkey has also historically, and, and that goes back to the 90s, developed a very close relationship with Israel in the areas of um, in both in military and in intelligence, as well as joint military production. Uh, that alliance was in crisis at one point, but it's still there. And then there's another element, is that Russia has um, established uh, a relationship with Israel. There's a large um, part of the Israeli population of Russian origin, and certainly that plays a role. But Vladimir Putin and Netanyahu have, have established a relationship. And some people view this as Russia sort of caving in to Israel against its uh, Syrian ally. But I think it is part of a very carefully thought out strategy of essentially, essentially, creating weaknesses within the, the U.S.-NATO structure because, uh, in a sense, Israel is also sleeping with the enemy. It, there, there's a bilateral relationship between uh, Moscow and Tel Aviv, and, um, and that should be taken into account. So that we might say, yes, uh, it is very difficult for the United States to wage war on Iran at this particular juncture because, A, Turkey is sleeping with the enemy, and Israel is also sleeping with Turkey <laughs> up to a point as well, which is sleeping with Iran and with, uh, with Russia. So that the structure of military alliances are not favorable to waging a U.S.-NATO-Israel war on 
on Iran. And, and we, we can learn from the lessons of history, particularly World War I, Triple Alliance, Triple Entente, that the structure of alliances played a very important role in, in the outbreak of World War I. But here we are in a situation where, where we have cross-cutting alliances. And the, the Russians and the Chinese are very astute in that regard. They will establish alliances with the allies of the United States. And this is a way also of uh, undermining uh, this military agenda by making it very difficult on the part of Washington to actually wage a war, well, to wage a war in Iran, they, if, if NATO is going to participate in that war, they will have to have the, the endorsement of Turkey. So Turkey is in bed with, with the enemy, and Turkey is also an ally with the United States and a member of NATO. And Israel is a, is a firm ally of the United States, but it also has some kind of joking relationship with Vladimir Putin. And, and all those things are part of a complex geopolitical structure. And I should mention that other things which are absolutely crucial. The United States is losing its stranglehold in Pakistan and, to some extent, also in India. Why? Pakistan is now trading with China. It's called the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, the CPEC. Um, China is investing in Pakistan. We're talking about a nation of 150 million people. And then, then on the other hand, Pakistan and India are now full members of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is the equivalent of NATO for the Russians and the Chinese. Officially, it's not a military alliance, but de facto it is. It's, the, it's China, Russia, uh, several of the former uh, Soviet republics, and now India and Pakistan have joined. And what this means is that the conflict between Pakistan and India is no longer, it's no longer under the helm of, of Britain or the United States. The colonial legacy has, in a sense, been shoved aside because under the SCO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, Pakistan and India which are members of the SCO, would have to resolve their border differences within the framework of the SCO. And they signed that agreement. So that we've got a very different uh, configuration in, in South Asia. Pakistan is aligned with China increasingly. Uh, India is sort of in between, but India also, also wanted to purchase the the S-400 uh, air defense system from Russia. And at the same time, I should mention, Saudi Arabia has also established links with Russia. They want to buy the S-400. Uh, and I suspect that the Khashoggi affair is ultimately linked to the fact that the current regime in Saudi Arabia is seeking some, uh, you know, rapprochement with, with Russia 
And this is something that the United States wants to, to undermine through, through regime change. But that's another kind of analysis that we'd have to look at. But there you are. And, and if, you, if you look at, at what's happening broadly uh, in Eurasia with the extension of uh, Chinese influence, Chinese influence is not only in, in, in the Asia-Pacific region, it extends into Africa. And it extends into countries which were former colonies of Western countries. And all of a sudden, the Chinese come in and start building bridges and roads. So that that is the nature of this, of this broader conflict. Shifts in alliances, very sophisticated shifts in alliances, and um, extensive powers uh, of both Russia and China, I should say that Russian military technology is advancing very rapidly and in a, in a very uh, specific way, which undermines the global military agenda. And China is now leading in terms of technology, for instance, telecommunications. China is the leader, let's say, in 5G. And, and the recent uh, confrontation uh, regarding uh, Huawei, the Chinese telecommunications giants, point precisely to that. It's a, it's a very serious conflict in the area of trade and intellectual property. And um, the response of the United States is, is ultimately rather idiotic because um, it doesn't really yield any concrete results in terms of rehabilitating U.S. hegemony in certain fields of technology. The Chinese are way ahead. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, Is the U.S. Planning to Wage War on Russia and China? I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What can we say about the geopolitical agenda of the United States, including President Trump's withdrawal from the Iran nuclear deal and the INF treaty? There are also uh, supposed to be ongoing negotiations to extend the new start to uh, reduce strategic weapons, which Trump called a bad deal. Well, I, I mean, this is, of course very dangerous because uh, it uh, ultimately points to the possibility of, of confrontation between nuclear powers. I, I think that we have to uh, build our understanding of those, of those occurrences by reviewing U.S. nuclear doctrine from approximately 2001, that doctrine has changed. And in effect, the withdrawal from, from these treaties, from my standpoint, is simply an indication to the enemy that, that US, U.S. nuclear doctrine is no longer based on what we called the doctrine of mutually assured destruction. Uh, which prevailed during the Cold War era when that first agreement was signed with Gorbachev under the Bush senior administration. And in 2001, the nuclear doctrine was 
was totally revamped. When I say doctrine, it's, it's how you view nuclear weapons and their use. Now, previously, nuclear weapons were considered as the, the weapon of last resort and for defensive purposes, and that you wouldn't use them on a first-strike basis. And this was a doctrine which was adopted during the Cold War because it was understood by both U.S. as well as Soviet leaders that this would lead to a nuclear holocaust. But they have since, since 2001, and, and it was actually approved by the Senate 2002, they are pushing the so-called more usable, uh, low-yield nuclear weapons, which are called the B-61. It's the B-61, and now it's the B-61-12. Uh, B-61-11, now B-61-12, which, is, which has been developed. And that those more usable, uh, low-yield, are harmless to the surrounding civilian population because the explosion is underground, because they're bunker buster bomb, and so on. It's total nonsense from the scientific point of view. Um, the fact of the matter is that these, these more usable nuclear weapons have an explosive capacity between one-third and 12 times a Hiroshima bomb, and they've been recategorized um, and uh, as more or less as conventional weapons. And um, I recall that Senator Edward Kennedy at the time accused the Bush administration of blurring the line between conventional and uh, strategic weapons, so that these bombs now are considered as peacemaking bombs. They're not weapons of mass destruction. Let's go ahead and use them. So it is extremely dangerous now because the, the U.S., has embarked on a first-strike nuclear weapons doctrine, including first-strike against non-nuclear states, e.g. Iran, and that, in fact, this first-strike, uh, using the so-called mini-nukes, could be used within the conventional war theater, uh, and, in fact, it doesn't even require... Uh, the approval of the commander-in-chief, namely Donald Trump. So we're in a situation which is extremely dangerous because the decision-makers do not realize and they don't understand the impacts of nuclear weapons because the propaganda apparatus, the internal propaganda apparatus, which they read, points to these harmless, low-yield weapons, but those low-yield weapons, they're nonetheless sufficient to unleash a third world war. I think the body of scientists involved in, in expertise on nuclear weapons will tell you that a nuclear war uh, would be the end of humanity. In your article, Wipe the Soviet Union Off the Map, you write that on March 1st, 2018, President Vladimir Putin unveiled an array of advanced military technologies in response to renewed U.S. threats to wipe the Russian Federation off the map as contained in Trump's 2018 nuclear posture review. What does Trump's 2018 nuclear posture review say? 
Well, you know, I I I think that the the 2018 nuclear posture review is really a red herring because it doesn't say anything different from the 2001 nuclear posture review. And I know that, that a whole series of interpretations have come up on, on that 2018 nuclear posture review. Uh, it simply reasserts the notion that this new generation of nuclear weapons, low yield, more usable, is what is being put forth. Now, what we must, of course, address is the fact that going back to the Obama administration, there is currently a $1.2 trillion nuclear weapons production program. Okay? In other words, that is money going to the defense contractors. And obviously, these are the lobby groups. They get the money. Now, they're getting the money for producing something which, first of all, the development of this new generation of nuclear weapons was actually decided at a secret meeting on Hiroshima Day, I believe it was in 2003, where the, the Pentagon and the private sector got together and it was the private sector, it was the defense contractors which designed a new program of nuclear weapons technology which would essentially feed, feed their pockets. It, it was profit-driven. And distinct from, from the Russian program, which was a very carefully designed air defense system to avoid the first strike, they said, well, no, the first strike won't work anymore. And the whole, I mean, the whole initiative going back to the, to the Reagan period was to, with Star Wars and so on, was to build uh, a win, uh, was, to, was to enact uh, a, a weapon system which would enable uh, knocking down uh, Russia or, or China with a first strike without the danger of any kind of, of response from the enemy. And, and Putin has said, no, this you can't do. You're stuck. And um, the weapons industry are not really concerned about that issue because they're getting, they're getting the $1.2 And Obama, I mean, bears a heavy responsibility for, this, for having endorsed this program. But Trump has, has, has uh, sort of pushed it up to 1.2. It used to be 1 trillion, now it's 1.2 trillion. And now, uh, bear in mind that, on a, that the defense budget, is, which was recently approved by the U.S. Congress, is the, of the order of $750 billion a year. It is a very large percentage of federal tax revenues, which goes to building the war economy. And inevitably, building the war economy is one of the main sources, not the only one, of the collapse of bridges and roads and hospitals and schools and, and the, the whole impetus to privatize everything which was public. Uh, they don't have money, the U.S., 
public purse does not have the resources to fund those civilian projects. And that is, of course, the guns and butter relationship, which is the key of, of your program. There's nothing left for butter. And, and that is something, of course, that we have to address. Uh, the, the empire is undermining the republic. And that's something which Julius Caesar understood. Um, you, don't build an, you don't build an empire with a republic. But the republic is dead. Uh, and and the, the, the devastation which is now occurring, the poverty in, uh, in the United States, is in large part not exclusively, in large part, the result of uh, the shift between butter towards guns. In other words, the development of a whole military apparatus, not to mention the militarization of justice and, and law enforcement and so on. I'm speaking with economist and director of the Center for Research on Globalization, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show... Is the U.S. planning to wage war on Russia and China? I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, with regard to the history of U.S. nuclear development, the nuclear project, the U.S. and the Soviet Union were allies during World War II, while the Manhattan Project was underway in the U.S. What was the purpose of the Manhattan Project? Well, let me uh, uh, put this in perspective, because today we, we are led to believe that, that nuclear weapons were, were developed to uh, confront uh, the enemies of World War II, which were, which were of course, uh, Germany, Italy, as far as the Axis is concerned, and then, of course, in Asia, it was Japan. Um, I have reviewed the history of, of nuclear war and nuclear uh, weapons. And in fact, uh, declassified documents confirm that the atomic bomb had been developed for use against the Soviet Union. Of course, it was used against Japan. Uh, but to what extent was that not simply, you know, a, a dress rehearsal for for the development, for the broader development of the nuclear weapons program. And I think what is very revealing now is that according to a secret document of the Pentagon uh, dated September 15, 1945, uh, the United States had envisaged blowing up the Soviet Union with a coordinated nuclear attack directed against major urban areas. Now, that people can go and consult that, that uh, declassified document. It was declassified a few years back. But what is revealing is that on September 15, 1945, there was a plan to blow up something of the order of, of 66 major urban areas in the Soviet Union with a total of 204 atomic bombs, okay? Now, uh, that, you can go and look at that plan. That plan was published and released on September 15, 1945, but in fact, it had been 
developed at a much earlier period in the course of World War II. And from what I understand is that um, the Russians or the Soviets had, had word of, of this plan as early as 1942. Uh, I should mention that the Manhattan Project was launched in, in 1939, two years prior to America's entry into World War II in December 1941. Okay? Now, the, the main um, partners in the, the Manhattan Project uh, were the United States, but also, but also Britain and Canada. And, of course, Canada played a key role because it also had, had very large supplies of uranium uh, in Western Canada. But what I'm saying is that this plan was, uh, was released. It's an internal document, obviously, but it, it's there to consult. And it, it's very detailed. And uh, this plan was launched more or less six weeks after the bombing of Hiroshima. Hiroshima was bombed on, on August the, the 6th, 1945. Nagasaki was bombed a few, uh, a few days later on August 9, 1945. And then six weeks later, on September 15, 1945, the Pentagon released a plan to blow up 66 strategic targets, namely cities in the Soviet Union, with... 204 atomic bombs. And then the question was, how do we organize the supply and production of these, of these uh, atomic bombs? What this means, and I think it's very, very important, is that while the Soviet Union and the United States were allies, and they were allies on September 15, 1945, and of course they were allies as of 1941, uh, fighting the, the Third Reich, that, in fact, in the course of World War II, there's evidence that the United States had already uh, planned to blow up the Soviet Union. And that plan was published on September 15, 1945, and that predates the Cold War, so that we are led to believe that somehow there was an arms race that took place as a result of the Cold War. No, no, that's wrong. The arms race occurred as a result of a secret plan dated September 1945, which had already been prepared during World War II against the Soviet Union when both countries were allies. And that is, of course, diabolical, but it means that we have to revise our understanding. And the Kremlin was aware of this plan to bomb 66 Soviet cities, and we published uh, excerpts of this. But the Pentagon estimated bomb requirements for the destruction of Russian strategic areas, September 1945, Moscow, area of the city in square miles, 110, number of bombs, six, Leningrad, 40 uh, terms of square miles, also six, and so on and so forth. The larger urban areas would be bombed with six atomic bombs, and the smaller ones would be two or three or one. In all, virtually all the urban areas in the Soviet Union were targets.
In this article that you've written on the Manhattan Project, Wipe the Soviet Union Off the Map, you write that had the U.S. decided not to develop nuclear weapons for use against the Soviet Union, the nuclear arms race would not have taken place. Absolutely. We wouldn't have had nuclear weapons technology. That, that, that was a decision taken in 1939 to develop nuclear technology, allegedly because the Germans were actually involved in, in, uh, in developing it. But there's, there are indications that, in fact, um, Nazi Germany was not intent upon developing nuclear weapons. That's another, you know, that's another area of, of discussion, but actually Hitler was against it. And for some ideological reason, he was against it. But, but um, it's unclear as to whether Germany would have been, uh, would have been a, a target. But there's, there's, there's no evidence uh, in that regard. And on the other hand, there are no declassified documents that indicate that, to my knowledge. But on the other hand, there's a declassified document that indicates that they wanted to blow up the Soviet Union. Now, just a few years ago, and I think this is very important, just to give you a little bit the feeling of what, what happens behind closed doors, but which is really known and documented. The RAND Corporation, on contract with the U.S. Army, the RAND Corporation is a sort of semi government independent research uh, entity which acts uh, on behalf of a U.S. government entity. In this case, it was a U.S. Army which commissioned a report examining uh, a war with China. And now this is called War with China, Thinking Through the Unthinkable. Now, the irony of this is that what they want to examine in this report is whether we could actually win a war on China, okay? And the, the conclusions are, and I'll read a, a small segment, conflict could be decided by domestic, political, international, and economic factors, all of which would favor the United States in a long, severe war against China. And then they say, although a war would harm both economies, damage to China's would be far worse. Because much of the Western Pacific would become a war zone, China's trade with the region and the rest of the world would decline substantially. And third, China's loss of seaborne energy supplies would be especially damaging. A long conflict could expose China to internal political divisions. And then, of course, Japan's increased military activity in the region could have a considerable influence on military operations. And essentially, this is a simulation of a war between the United States and China and comes up with the conclusion that we're going to win it. Okay? Now, th that's diabolical and it's criminal. Okay? What, what, what has China done to the, the sovereignty of the United States? It's a hegemonic project to go in and blow up China. Now, I say this, but at the same time, more recently, uh, there's been another project which has been put forth, which consists in waging uh, a war against Russia and China, and which is currently being uh, discussed by the U.S. Congress. 
so uh, the United States is saying, yes, we have plans to wage war on these two countries. And, and this, is, uh, this is known and documented. And nobody in the media will actually say, well, we shouldn't do it. And nobody in the media will actually uh, put forth uh, an examination of what this kind of, of um, agenda would imply if it were carried out. And it's, of course, it's tied into Russiagate, it's tied into the trade war with China, and so on. Well, what then is your view of 2019? Well, 2019 will have several countervailing processes. Um, on the one hand, there is a protest movement developing in, in Western Europe with the uh, the yellow vests, uh, les gilets jaunes. Now, uh, my assessment is that that movement uh, will be effective in as much as it also becomes an anti-war movement, a movement against NATO, because uh, the impoverishment and the high levels of unemployment in the European Union are largely due to the militarization of their respective economies. Military spending uh, is taking a big chunk of, of the public purse on the one hand, and then you have the neoliberal agenda. But a meaningful movement will have to integrate. It has to address these deadly macroeconomic reforms which trigger poverty on the one hand, and it has to address the fact that neoliberalism and the global war economy are intricately related and that neoliberalism creates the basis for funding uh, the so-called defense industry. Uh, so that, that movement, I think, is, is certainly gaining impetus. How will it unfold? Uh, and I think we have to think in terms of grassroots movements uh, worldwide. And we have to think of grassroots movements within the armed forces. It is a violation of the U.S. Constitution to fight illegal wars. That is the oath that's, that members of the armed forces take when they, when they start. And uh, I think within the armed forces, there has to be also a concurrent movement from the grassroots up and through the governmental intelligence establishment. We're not going to reverse the tide simply by having people protesting. And anti-war sentiment will not undermine this, this military agenda. All the sectors of society will have to join in and understand that a $1.2 trillion nuclear weapons program is ultimately the source of potential destruction leading to the unthinkable, which is the destruction of, of humanity. Uh, that has to be understood, but how that grassroots movement will will develop under present conditions is is very uncertain because people don't have that understanding. At the same time, as we know, all these NGOs are funded by corporate foundations. We have color revolutions. Dissent is is funded, and it's manufactured. And we have uh, divisions within the left. Uh, we have s segments of the left which are supporting the wars in Syria and so on. And the question is, how do we build a mass movement to undermine uh, 
this imperial agenda, which is also generating poverty and despair, well, throughout the world, but also in the core of the empire, namely the United States of America and, of course, Western Europe, Canada, and so on. Michel Chosodovsky, thank you very much. Delighted. I hope that we will undermine this agenda in some way. I've been speaking with Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show has been, Is the U.S. Planning to Wage War on Russia and China? Michel Chosodovsky is the founder, director, and editor of the Center for Research on Globalization, based in Montreal, Quebec. The Global Research website, globalresearch.ca, publishes news articles, commentary, background research, and analysis. Michel Chosodovsky is the author of 11 books, including The Globalization of Poverty and the New World Order, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, America's War on Terrorism, The Globalization of War, and America's Long War Against Humanity. Visit globalresearch.ca. That's globalresearch.ca. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaromako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at G&B Radio. Peace, give thanks, live life, and release. You dig me? You got me?